Hello, welcome to this episode of the Science of Feeding the World in Lockdown. Today we spoke to number wizard extraordinaire, Professor Marion Scott OBE. It was the first OBE on the podcast. We're going up in the world. Yeah, she talked to us about many, many things, including satellites in space taking pictures of lakes and making sure animals were happy. What else did we hear about? Gary did the world's best thing explainer. Watch out for that. <laughs> Thank you. I just I just need to remember the analysis of Kitty's faces. I think that will stick in my mind. And uh, tracking air pollution with Twitter. Welcome to another episode of The Science of Feeding the World with me, Gary Fruin. I'm Hannah McGrath. And I'm Alex Dye. And this week we are joined by number wrangler, statistical juggler, uncertainty spotter, <laughs> Professor Marion Scott, OBE of the University of Glasgow. Welcome and thanks for joining us, Marion. Thank, thank you very much. It's a big <laughs> pleasure to be here. <laughs> Great. Um, oh, which question to choose? We always start with a big question. I think uh, maybe we'll go with... Uh, can data end hunger? Gosh, that is a big question. <laughs> that might be the biggest opening question we've had so far. <laughs> so, um, I think at a very basic level, the answer is no, because data doesn't plant things in the field um, or harvest any crops. But I think what data can do when used with... Um, smart modelling, um, decision-making tools, visualisation tools, is help inform the people who are planting, for the people who are harvesting, for the people who are shipping, um, when to make decisions, when to do certain things, and maybe also how to, for instance, improve the yield. So I, I think data and so not just data, but what you do with data can help in terms of perhaps the kind of um, improving the strains of what we grow through genetic work um, in terms of things like bioinformatics. Um, I think it can help, as I said, you know, in the sense of looking at the soil. Uh, thinking about um, its productivity um, and particularly one of the areas I'm really interested in, which is water use. Um, water is an amazing resource, which certainly living in the west of Scotland, um, one <laughs> tends to kind of take for granted. Um, yeah, you, don't, you don't have any problems with lack of rainfall there often, do you? Uh, not commonly no although we have had a very dry april and which has been very pleasant but um certainly for those who are out in the garden it's noticeable that things are drying um so so i think it's a it's a it's an enabling tool good that's good it's i've just just occurred to me actually that uh, it's kind of um works well for us today that we're interviewing somebody from scotland because i'm supposed to be in scotland today uh, exploring the mountains ah. uh, but as of covid i'm stuck <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of yeah yeah should we should we should we dial it back a little bit then and start with some basics uh, uh for the listeners uh, by asking what is big data big data 
Oh gosh. Well, yes. We, I mean, as a as a professional statistician, we often have these discussions in some senses. Um, I think that for me, um, you know, if you if you look into what people are writing about when they're talking about big data, they're talking about data where you have very large quantities. So they talk about volume. They talk about circumstances where you have data being collected at unprecedented rates. So they talk about velocity. Um, they talk about variety. So different forms of data coming from different forms of instrumentation, including human beings, um, since there's been a, a tremendous, if you like, upsurge in the whole kind of area of what's described as citizen science, partly because we walk around with, you know, smartphones which can measure a variety of things. Um, we have access to, you know, autonomous sensors. We have satellites which are recording, um, you know, very high frequency um, in terms of space. Uh, data every day, every couple of days, and so on, just depending on what the, um, if you like, the orbiting patterns actually are. So, so big data really is 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 a kind of a mix of all of these things. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, petabytes and petabytes and petabytes. Um, although sometimes it is. Um, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be being collected every you know second um but often it is in these circumstances for me um i think the word big is probably the the misnomer in some senses in in a way in that some of the challenges that we have are not just simply in terms of having large amounts of data but often often having large amounts of data where you also have gaps or missing information um so i like to think about what the kind of current situation is it's not just simply about how much data you actually have but how it relates to data coming from different kind of data streams and it's certainly in the kind of environmental context there's been a tremendous lot of things written about you know the digital environment we live in a digital environment we have opportunities to collect um much more data than we ever did before uh and there's then always a question of well, what are we going to do with it uh, so that's my kind so, of answer about big in that sense <laughs> can i jump in then so how would you say that kind of um, I really want to jump into the sparseness bit of the big data a bit later on. But before we kind of get into the details of big data, how would you say big data is different from past data that we have? Because so somewhere like Rothamsted has got these data sets from kind of the 1870s from from experiments. How is that data or maybe data from the 1980s or, you know, different to, to what we've got today? So, well, one of the things in some senses is that Certainly, historically, um, I think we have generated data in very carefully designed ways. So the Rosamsted experiments are just a case in point, and they're hugely valuable, but they were designed experiments. They had very specific sampling frames and so on. Nowadays, um, increasingly, data are just being collected without necessarily um, there being a huge amount of thought about how to manage the design process or the sampling process. Um, does that annoy you as a statistician? It doesn't annoy me uh, in, in any sense, um, but I do sometimes um, get slightly um, 
not irritated, but I get slightly worried that sometimes we 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 see so much about let's just collect everything that we possibly can because we have all the technology. Um, and sometimes I think some careful thought beforehand could design an experiment um, or design a sampling frame, which would be equally valuable and sometimes potentially more so. So I just yeah. sometimes think that we've kind of forgotten a little bit about some of these, if you like, more traditional um, approaches to thinking about how we generate data. I'm just going to get my notebook because I'm going to note some of these things down because A, it makes me sound smart and B, it's relevant to my PhD. So I'm just going to... <laughs> this is research. This is Hannah's like... <laughs> this is why I justify the uh, podcast to my supervisors. Oh, okay. um... I'll be turning up in the discussion of Hannah's thesis. <laughs> I've always wanted to cite a podcast. Um, so this kind of idea then that you can be efficient about your... You use the word sampling frame a lot. I didn't know if you wanted to perhaps explain that. That's a new a new phrase to me. But the idea that by thinking about your sampling frame, you can do things in a more efficient way. And perhaps, you know, why in big data we need efficiency is something that I think is quite so, interesting. Well, I guess, I mean, historically um, and traditionally, a lot of statistical methodology was built around how to design either experiments or to carry out surveys. And that often was because actually acquiring data was potentially expensive Mm. um, in that sense. Whereas nowadays, I suppose one of the kind of arguments is, well, it's not so expensive um, to collect large amounts of data. So perhaps we don't have to think quite as hard about um, how we should manage that collection process. Yeah, I was thinking because, um, you know, things like sensors and drones and satellites, we, we kind of all love and, and, and jump onto that. And, um, you know, in terms of the cost of me going to a field versus the cost of a satellite, scanning the entirety of whales in a day is 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 a lot is a lot more kind of cheaper and, and manageable and actually the resolutions they can they can work to now so although so i think commercially you can get satellite images up to about 30 centimeters although yes absolutely absolutely the government have ones that go up to one centimeter and they're working on getting kind of like real time satellite images obviously that's more for intelligence than feeding the world but if we could get access to to anywhere near that kind of resolution it's huge potential so i I think i think my 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 view in some senses is that we need a little bit or more than a little bit of both so it's not i think it's not a question of either or um i think we need both and i think together there where some of the kind of interesting um, challenges from a statistical point of view actually are how you bring together these different um, forms of data um, it's sometimes either called well we call it data fusion but sometimes people talk about data ingestion or data assimilation so there's lots of kind of interesting words um, creeping into our vocabulary yeah. that we didn't used to have we're getting very sci-fi with some of these I'm, terms. I'm picturing a sci-fi. Data oh, ingestion yes. makes me feel like I'm eating a memory stick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the projects I've seen that you've worked on, and I think I've, I've seen you speak about actually at Rothamsted, was the Global Lake Project. 
And I wondered if you could talk us through that project and as we kind of go along the, the story of, of kind of what you did and how you did it and why you did it, if we can jump in and ask the stupid questions about the things that, that I think, because I think that was a really good a good story that, that I kind of could visualise because it was about lakes and I can see, I can picture what a lake looks like. Yes. So the idea here was that, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, water is an amazing resource, whether it's water quality or water quantity. Um, And satellite um, imagery of lakes uh, will allow us to produce, if you like, maps of those lakes in terms of some of the kind of key water quality parameters. Um, And so the idea behind this project was to take a historical time series of lake images around the world. And the goal here was to look at 1,000 lakes worldwide. So you you take the kind of, so by time series, you mean kind of data from every... So, 20 years worth of data well, so you, so you can are, look into the yes, past yes exactly the hope had been that we would have had something like 15 years worth of data so we were using archived images and we had approximately 12 years I think I remember correctly 12 between 12 and 15 years and the really really sad thing was Shortly after submitting the grant application to fund this project, the satellite that we were attending, intending to use to have a more modern and up-to-date list of um, observations um, was hit by something in space and (laughs) flipped around. So as a result, um, that's partly why, as I said, the time series of data that we looked at didn't actually go up to the current day because the satellite we had been intending to use was no longer functioning. Oh, my God. What did it get this hit by? Not one of SpaceX's... No, we think so it was... This is more sci-fi by the minute. So um, why do you need the satellite, though? What, what What's important about the satellite? How does the satellite give you data? Well, the reality is that, as I said, we were trying to look at a 1,000 lakes globally. Um, many of these lakes are not routinely monitored, say, by environment agencies, so we had very little data and little information about them. Um, some of them are obviously well studied with in situ observations and folks going out in boats and so on, but some of them not. So the idea was that we were hoping to demonstrate the power of the satellite data. Uh, and as I said, you know, the, the technology was such that we were looking at fairly large lakes. Um, but the new satellites, particularly the ones that have been launched by the European Space Agency, so the Sentinel programs, um, they would allow you to now look at much, much smaller lakes than we were able to do. When you say kind of looking at them with the satellite, what kind? You talked about health indicators of of lakes. Um, so chlorophyll, get... dissolved oxygen, temperature, these types of measures. Can you, I mean, I'm used to the last time I think I tried to measure the health of a lake was I was probably about nine going out with a bit of litmus paper to the school pond. Can you tell these these sorts of things from satellite imagery? Um, some things you can, some things you can't. It all depends. There's got to be some sort of calibration process. So the, the instrument on the, the satellite produces, I mean, it... It basically measures reflectance. 
um, from the water's surface. And depending on the band, the energy band, um, in terms of or the light or the wavelength, sorry, the wavelength rather than the energy band of the reflecting spectrum, you can show that certain signals and certain um, wavelengths relate to things like chlorophyll in the water. So then once we've got those images, you, you talk about doing kind of dimensional reduction, which is a fantastic piece of jargon. Yes. Um, well, and so I wondered instance, if you could explain. If you, if you take, um, say, some of the Great Lakes, um, each, each image from the satellite is made up of um, very, very many pixels. So pixels are small. I'm going to call them squares because that's the way that I think about them. They're small blocks. And in a, in a great lake, there could be millions of these little blocks. Um, and the problem that in some senses you face as a statistician is you have a spatial image with millions of observations and then you've got those millions of observations repeated let's say every fortnight or every month for 15 years so it's a very large amount of data this is where the big comes in and if you imagine that we have 1000 lakes not all clearly <laughs> as big as the great lakes but of a similar sort of structure and we wanted to have some type of automatic stroke semi-automatic um, statistical modelling that would allow us to produce um, models to describe how these measures of water quality were changing over time. Yeah. And indeed, to look at what was happening in space within some of these very large lakes over time, but then also looking at them globally on the planet in space and over time. So you were kind of so we've got our lake which has been split into the kind of different the blocks and all the different squares. However, we want to look at it for each pixel, and then that pixel, if you almost so in my head, I imagine it being like layered up for the you uh, the listeners at home. I'm gesturing a lot with my hands, which obviously means absolutely nothing on a podcast medium. But I'm imagining that for each square, you have lots of layers of kind of data. So. Um, so the dissolved oxygen for June, July, August, September or something. Yes, And indeed. so to try and reduce the number of layers that you've got, you kind of make it into a curve or a graph for each pixel. So that, that's, that's yes. So the idea would be um, that you could produce a, a curve for each pixel, but equally you could produce a curve averaged over all of the pixels. So, to, so, so okay, I'm, I'm going to have to dumb this down to my level because... <laughs> uh, so let's, so to put this on my level, if you took a photo of your own face once a month, every month for 12 years, and then zoomed in on that picture until it was the little pixels, the little squares, each individual square, you could then use this software to look at how those pixels change over time. And that's how, yes. and so that's like, that's the, Okay. Yes, exactly. So in the context of my face, I, I have freckles. So you could imagine on, on, on one of these pixels, which is going to be relatively small, um, in the winter, there's probably not very many freckles obvious, but in the summer, because we might be out in the sunshine, the freckles become more obvious. So what you're seeing as you look at a pixel and how it changes over um, time, you might imagine in a year that you know they're they're pale in the winter and brighter in the summer, and that repeats each of yeah, those twelve okay. years. And so what we are trying to model is those changes within the year, but also any potential changes 
over the 12 or 15 years. So, so I guess then one of the questions is, what did you find? What, what oh, interesting no, stuff no, did you find? No, 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 we yet. can't do that yet. I've got way oh, okay. more questions first, Have Gary. You? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll hold off. So this this is just, sorry to do that to you, Gary, but we just need to talk that about sparse. When big data isn't big is I think, so that's the kind of my next question is about then, why do we need curves? Um and how, you know, the things that the, one of the funniest talks I've ever seen from a scientist was was a colleague called Nikos who who had to ring up NASA to get satellite oh, images. Great. And, he, you know, yeah. NASA would say, here's the images and he would look at them and it's just cloud. So um, which I realize I'm not doing a funny retelling of. But why do we need curves and, and, and what happens when we have gaps in that those missing So. The, the gaps and the sparseness are, are an interesting problem because you're quite right. Um, at certain times of the year in certain parts of the world, um, there's a lot of cloud and um, our instruments for these particular measures um, don't see through the clouds. So you have gaps. And that was what I was alluding to in terms of, yes, you can have big data in terms of you still have millions and millions of pixels over time, but there are periods of time where there are no observations. Um, so that's where the sparseness comes in. Uh, the reason for using curves is that curves are immensely efficient summaries. So the curve shows you how water quality might change throughout the season. So once yes. you, you know, if you have like a, if you have summers and it's warmer or something, you you could pick up those. But you could also pick up if you had a particularly hot year or a particularly cold year. You could maybe also so pick those up, and that's just through using these curves. And then if you wanted to compare the curves, what you know, what would the comparing the curves show, and why would you do it? So it's not, I suppose, strictly we didn't do a formal comparison. What we did was clustering. So what we did was we took the um, curves. And we put each of the curves for each of our lakes um, through a clustering algorithm to try and find which groups of lakes had, well, for which group of lakes had curves which were more similar in that group than they were to any other lakes in other groups. I think that's the, the so the, to me, maybe I'm wrong, and as a professor, of these things please tell me if i'm wrong but the bit that i think is the most important then is once you've done all of the processing of the images and the the putting them into smooth curves and stuff is then from an like an ecological perspective you can then cluster them to figure out lakes that are similar or, or lakes that are good or lakes that are, are bad and, and it's seeing what's similar or what's different um is the bit that then helps us you know well, kind that, of like you were saying that, at the beginning that's the bit that if you like, contributes to the ecological discussion and debate. Um, clearly, how you get to what those clusters are, um, there's a lot of work, um, a lot of development was needed, a lot of testing and trying out. Um, but absolutely, you know, at the end of the day, the project was composed or constructed in a way to say, with these data resources, um, what's the ecological benefits in, in, in terms of our knowledge and understanding that we can gain from actually looking at these data in this particular way. So I suppose this is the point where Gary, you, you yeah, can yeah, ask your... Ask, can I, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So what would some of those uh, ecological insights be? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, now, this is where it becomes tricky because I'm clearly no ecologist. So I think, if I remember correctly, um, we identified, I think it was something like 12 different clusters. Um, and you can begin to see, if you like, there are some lakes where, for instance, the seasonal patterns are very shallow. Um, there are others where there's big seasonal um, swings uh, in that sense and there are some lakes where you can show that generally speaking some of these measures of water quality are generally increasing there are other lakes where you can show that um, it is improving but it's improving at a slower rate or it has kind of plateaued Um, and again with colleagues from the University of Dundee um, there's been continuing work to try and look at, as I said, the kind of catchment information in terms of how many people live around these lakes, um, what sort of, um, if you like, agricultural um, activity there is in that region. All of these are, are considered to be, if you like, potential drivers for how lake water quality might actually be changing. I think it's really exciting. Um, shall we do the rapid fire questions now, maybe? Yes. Audio. Oh dear, indeed. <laughs> Are you prepared to sing a jingle in front of an OBE? That's the question, Gary. Oh my god, this is, this is terrible. So I have to apologise to every single guest in advance because this is only going to be in time for me because of the lag over the internet. So it's going to be out of time. So, but we're going to sing it nonetheless. Good. It never sounds good. All right, I'm going to take my headphones off. Yeah. Three, two, one, and... It's time for the rapid-fire questions. It's time to ask some questions really, really fast. (laughs) That wasn't too bad for you guys. You are improving. I changed the time (laughs) signature about halfway through, but I think we got away with it. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going to ask this question. I didn't write this first question. I'm going to ask it as it was written. Uh, the Proclaimers or Red Hot Chili Pipers? Uh, Red Hot Chili Pipers. Of course. <laughs> Car or train? Uh, train. Newspaper, reading or watching the news? Uh, newspaper. Uh, coding shiny new data visualisation for sea surface temperature change in R or checking your book to find the critical value of students' T distribution with 19 degrees of freedom? Um, I think uh, coding an R, please and thank you. <laughs> East or West Coast? West. West side. <laughs> oh, uh, Madonna or Pink Floyd? West Sorry, is best. Madonna or Pink Floyd? Whoa. Whoa. Uh, very different. Very, very different. Pink Floyd. The correct answer. Good choice. Very good choice. <laughs> K means clustering or random forest models? Uh, K-Mean clustering. Forest or beach? Beach. Sky or Jura? Or oh, Jura. <laughs> Best Star Wars movie? That's uh, my favourite question. The first Skywalker. Or the last Skywalker. The one that's just come out. Ah, no, no comment on that. Uh, right, this, this is a challenge one, this one. You've got one minute... I'm gonna. I'm going to time you on this, okay? This is gonna to be tough. To, ex- 
to explain to us what a confidence interval is. Okay. Okay. So a confidence interval is provides a range um, of plausible values for something that you do not know. That's it. Oh, oh, that was like less than 10 seconds. That was eight seconds on the clock there. <laughs> I've got the popcorn right. out. I was ready for the whole lesson. <laughs> no. It took me longer to set up the timer to time you than it took to answer the question. That's what happens when you get a professor of statistics, OBE, on to explain a confidence interval, guys. Yes. Well, I would have to say that that's actually not an uncommon question that we would ask when we are trying to, for instance, appoint graduate teaching assistants. Can you explain what a confidence interval is? Well, there yeah. you go. If anyone's yeah. going for one of those jobs, there is your answer. <laughs> there is your answer, yeah. Yes. <laughs> For me, a confidence That's... interval is the amount of time it takes me to feel really good about a really bad idea. <laughs> and then we do the podcast. <laughs> right, last question then. What's the last film that made you cry? Last film? Oh. Paddington. Oh, oh my oh. God. Paddington 2, in fact. Oh, and no. Aunt Lucy came. It was so happy. It's a magical moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask a question that's less about the uh, statistics and more about your opinion of the statistics? <laughs> Do you think the hype behind big data is deserved? So I think there is some definite substance to big data and how it can transform what we do and how we do it and how, what we understand. Um, but hype, I think, can sometimes just overemphasize. Um, so, as I said, there are definite um, benefits, but I'm not sure that hyping it is the right thing that we should be doing. I think we should be always conscious of caring about data quality, caring about modeling quality, caring about interpretation. So not hype, but certainly there are there are um, you know there are solid reasons to imagine that it that it is fundamentally a good sign. I like the way that's a very statisticiany kind of answer. So at Rothamsted we have uh, statisticians you can get advice from. So I'll go in with an experiment I've designed and and kind of say is this right? And I hope to kind of get either like a yes or no. This is how to make it wrong. And then you'll the the joke is you go in with a question, you come out with sort of fifteen questions about life. Uh, so yeah, that, I, I would agree. I mean, statisticians um, are not terribly black and white in their opinions. We tend to have, if you like, a, a more nuanced view where we try to think about, and it's back to this idea of we have to deal with uncertainty. Mm. That's why you've got a statistician's answer. That's fine. So but I think I've got questions about uncertainty we can jump into, but before we go there, I just kind of wanted to ask, because... My view of numbers is that they can't, well, maybe not my view, but I think a, a very common view is that numbers exist to give us answers, particularly from like a statistical point of view. Like we want to know what uh, what's the likelihood of it raining or I want oh, to know if it will it's... rain, but instead I get a what's the likelihood of it raining. And I find it quite odd that we, yeah, we think of numbers as being certainty and it turns out actually maybe, <laughs> maybe they're not. 
Well, I mean, I think the reality is that, well, I mean, I can tell you fairly specifically what my age is, but I won't. So there's, you know, there is a certainty to that. I have a, I have a birthday and I know when it is in that regard. But certainly in terms of many of the kind of, um, you know, I guess instrumentation that we have, um, it is able to measure potentially accurately and precisely but precisely means that even though my room temperature is probably let's say I don't know 19 degrees it might actually given the instrument that I'm using it could actually be somewhere between 18.8 and 19.2 so that's an example of an uncertain data point but the other thing that I have to think about is in the room that I am currently in and close to the window the temperature is probably lower uh, than it is beside the radiator so there's a natural variation within the space so talking about what's the temperature in the room I have to think about the variability in temperature throughout the room but also my ability to measure it with the thermometer that I actually have. So that's the kind of uncertainty, variability type, um, if you like, discussion that we have to have. So we can't, in that sense then, I guess we can't, we can't have a thermometer at every point Correct. in the room. Yes. Um, so the, yeah, so what's the kind of difference then between model generating actual observations in terms of, I guess, reliability of, the predictions or suggestions, recommendations so, um, that might come from that So, data. for instance, um, I, I did with a colleague of mine and one of our PhD students, he did, well, the PhD student did all the work, of course. Um, we were looking at um, air quality and health effects, and we were using um, the routine monitoring network that we have in the United Kingdom, which generates um, air quality measurements at about, I'm going to say, approximately 80 locations for instance, in Scotland. Um, and then we had modelled air quality measurements um, from a gridded model that produced uh, data that corresponded in space to about a one kilometre cell. So we were trying to use the monitoring location data, which is at relatively few places, if you think about the size of Scotland, with the model data which covered the whole of the country in these one kilometre squares. So we were fusing or ingesting or assimilating, however you want to word it, these different data sources together. So by that, you you kind of mean that if you've... Um... Something if we go, you know, use this sort of temperature in your room example, if, if you've modelled or, or kind of not speculated, it's it's beyond that, but you can create a mathematical statistical relationship of distance from the radiator, distance from the window and height or something, and, and you could create that. And that those numbers wouldn't be they haven't, you know, you haven't used many or any observations for those. No, correct. Um, but they would still count as data and you could they would still have uncertainties within them yeah yeah exactly would you then have to go and do kind of observational experiments to confirm that the model is accurate yes more confidence yes. in that model so absolutely i mean i think that's really important um whether it's a mathematical model or a process model or a statistical model um you know you are using data to help inform the parameter values the estimates that are being produced and um, whether or not if you use the the model to predict at an unobserved location or an unobserved time point that you can actually demonstrate that 
what it's producing seems to mimic what you can observe. How important do you think, I think I'm using this correctly, how important do you think accuracy is? So if I said you had a model that was 80% accurate at telling you the temperature in a room or the air quality or the soil nitrogen or something, would you say 80% is good or bad? So um, you're going to get another statistician's answer. (laughs) (laughs) I was expecting that. That depends um, because it depends on what you intend to use that model for. So um, I uh, used to, a couple of years ago, taught some courses for postgraduate students in our um, biological and life sciences. And we were looking at um, using, I think it was ultrasound, if I remember correctly, um, to effectively try and quantify the weight of a horse's heart um, without having to do any surgery in that sense. I didn't sense. know where I thought it was going to go. Yeah. So, so the, the idea is, you know, you, you make some measurements on a living, breathing horse and you want that model to predict what the weight of the horse's heart is. Now, if you need to know ah. the weight of the horse's heart within, let's say, you know, 10 grams or you only need to know it's plus or minus a kilogram, then that's where, in a sense, knowing how both accurate and precise your model is, is important. So the example that you give, you know, 80% might be good enough for the purpose that I have in mind. But if it's a really, really, you know, something that I need to get very, very fine-tuned, 80% might not be good enough. There are two kind of um, experiments that I think I read about either on your website or listened to in uh, the talk that you'd sent over before we recorded mm-hmm. this. Um, that I just want to ask about because I thought they sounded cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> one, of the, one of them was about air quality. Yes. Which yes. is, you, I think you mentioned something about using Twitter data yes. as well as using very yeah. expensive yep. um, data yep. from... Yep. Um, little recording devices yes. for air yeah. quality, yeah. showing that the, the data recorded by Twitter was just as reliable as the data gathered using these very expensive equipment. So, and so that expense perhaps wasn't justified. Um, I need to qualify that. I didn't do that analysis. I was using that as an example. That was um, exactly. okay. a, a piece yeah. of published work that I was using as, a, as an illustration. Um, and I, I don't... Um, I mean, it's so long since I looked at the original paper. I can't, I can't really give you, you know, any detail of that. But um, this comes back to this kind of idea of citizen science a little bit. Um, mm. The idea that, um, you know, our ability to um, record something, you know, a human being as 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 as, and as an observer basically is really important. The challenges with some of the Twitter feeds in some senses is also thinking about what you search on, you know, what the language is that you're looking for, sometimes what the sentiment is of the tweet and so on. Uh, And those can be challenges. But um, I know that there are very successful examples of, you know, information about things like um, Twitter and so on, being able to say that there's an incident in some place within a city quicker than you can get official information. So so again, mm. my, my view would be that um, all of these da- di- different data streams have value, um, but you need to be conscious just of what some of the underlying 
challenges might be with working with mm. um, such data. Um, it's not uncommon, for instance, um, you know, biodiversity monitoring is much of it is very dependent on volunteers. And mm. there are some fabulous schemes within the United Kingdom. You have to reflect that, um, you know, you have to know something about the observer effort. Um, you have mm. to know that in, your, in instances, you know, um, if it's a kind of just a general call to folks to go out and look for things, then, you know, when the weather's nice, more people will go out than when the weather's not nice and things like that. So you need to be aware of what some of the kind of, if you like, um, I'm going to say hidden biases might be when you come to mm. use those data. In terms of that kind of leads quite nicely into the second experiment I wanted to ask you about in terms of hidden things and observer bias. Uh, there was another one, you, uh, and this is a quote I've been from your website. It says, I've been developing a general methodology for constructing animal pain and welfare scales. Yes. And there was a, a picture of a, a very kind of happy looking doggo on, on the website. And this was kind of about understanding. Uh, it, it was a white dog with nice It tongue. was. That's my sister's fox terrier called Hetty. <laughs> so Hetty can get a name mentioned in this. <laughs> It just seemed Shout out to Hetty. very yeah, bizarre to Hetty, Absolutely. How do you go about kind of trying to understand, create a model for how much kind of pain an animal is in following a veterinary visit? This this is a it's a very interesting whole project area, um, and 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 it's been something that I've been doing now for probably fifteen ish, if not longer, years with two uh, really good. Uh, colleagues um, who are both vets um, and very good friends. The idea here is that, um, in essence, we are using a questionnaire from a variety of different approaches, including, um, you know, surveys, asking people what it is they notice in terms of their animal's behaviour. And we have a, a series of kind of, I suppose you could call them structured questionnaires, so uh, an owner might, for instance, you know, could be asked, how lively has your dog been today compared to how it was yesterday? And the answer is, well, it's been less lively by, you know, quite a lot, that type of thing. Um, and we have a statistical model which takes these uh, answers to these questions, of which there's quite a few, um, and converts it into effectively a score which is related to what's called a latent or hidden variable, which might be happy and content, and might be energetic and enthusiastic and so on. So we have tools for acute pain in dogs and cats. And one of the interesting things with the cats is um, we actually used um, facial images. So there's quite a lot of literature about um, baby grimace scales in terms of degrees of pain. And we did a big study where we basically took lots of images of cats um, and we knew, uh, you know, whether they'd had surgery, et cetera, et cetera. And we mapped their faces and looked at the different changes to um, uh, mouth shape, what the ears were doing, what the eyes were doing and so on. And we if also I ever have needed these... more and an excuse to take more pictures of my cat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when, does, when does this stop being science and just stop being, someone's like, I'll look at the pictures of the cats. I will I'll volunteer myself to do that. Um, it's fascinating then because I guess this being the science of feeding the world podcast, I, I'm kind of tempted then to, to start thinking about the, there's always been a very big public conversation about animal welfare and yes. livestock agriculture and that yes. sort of thing. And, yes. And whether 
whether mm. this kind of methodology might ever be extended to, the, well, to that kind of thing? Well, it has been, in fact. So there's um, there's quite a lot of farm animal welfare schemes um, based around observations of things like um, cows and pigs and so on and sheep uh, mm. in that regard. So there are schemes around that would, would allow that to be used. Okay, so shall we ask a big kind of finishing question and then move on to our thing explainer closing game there's one here that we've got written down which is uh what you know we've talked a lot about big data i guess it would be really good to get a sense of what in your sense looking to the future are are your kind of hopes for big data what do you, you know you said your kind of main work has been on the environment what is it that you really hope that big data is going to deliver for in terms of the environment so I'm going to come back to this thing about a digital landscape or a digital environment, whatever you want to call that. For me, the opportunities that some of the new technology offer to actually monitor and measure um, and then to bring all of that together, I think historically we've all been very good at working in water quality. Um, at working in air quality, but less good at perhaps in thinking about how all of these systems behave together. And I think it's it's the how things function together. It's the system of the planet. That's for me is is the big hope. That's a good hope. Oh. I hope we see that as well. That was nice. <laughs> yeah. The Thing Explainer. Using only the thousand most commonly used English words. The Thing Explainer. How are you so good at this? This is The Thing Explainer. Okay, uh, Marion, we asked you to describe your science using only the 1,000 most commonly used English words. What did you arrive at? So I have to say that I did add in a couple of words or, or modifiers that I hope are okay. So I have finding oh, yeah. patterns and information in uncertain and varied data. Very nice. Ah. Very nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty spot on. Come on then, Alex. Let's have uh, yours. Oh no. <laughs> I put watch from space. Keep animals happy. The whole world in all its beauty. <laughs> I wanted to say. I wanted to say something like a whole world in harmony. Because the last point you made about having everything, looking at all of the, everything in one big. I couldn't. Couldn't get that to work. <laughs> that was good. Mm-hmm. I hate you, Alex. This is why Alex <laughs> needs to go last, so that when, in comparison... What's yours, Hannah? How big data can explain and help us understand life. Okay, good. That's good. Yeah. yeah, but not as poetic as Alex that is. No, that's <laughs> true. Okay, so I'm, I'm kind of taking the piss a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Every every episode, Hannah makes fun of me because um, I go too far and I get too geeky. So I've decided to go extra far um, <laughs> this time round. Here is mine. Running analysis of big sets of data in order to discover things about the environment that would not usually be easy to see. This analysis has revealed rich and interesting descriptions about the world we live in, which could have far-reaching economic, social and ecological effects by informing new policy measures and helping us fix historical environmental wrongs and addressing current existential threat that we face to create a better world. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm sorry, Hannah. That's impressive. You know, I fell down in awe. In awe. Thank you. And that wraps things up for another episode of the Science of Feeding the World. Thank you very much as well. That was that was very enjoyable. I enjoyed that. Oh, lovely. Thank you for joining us, Mary. Thank you. Thank you for joining. I loved it. So thank you for joining us in this, the last episode of season one of the Science of Feeding the World. We hope you've enjoyed it. We're going to take a break now while we record lots and lots of new episodes with new and interesting people. And we'll be back in a month or two. Um, Our audience is still growing. And if you're one of those who have only just joined us, then there are 14 other episodes you can go back and binge on to get your fill. If you've enjoyed listening throughout this season, then please kind of rate us on your favorite apps, like, subscribe, and share it. It really helps us to get more support and to make more episodes. We'll see you next time.